<laughs> we've been working our way through the book of Acts, and what we've been saying through this whole book is that the church of Jesus exists for a single purpose, and that is to proclaim the saving death and particularly the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If we don't do that, no one will. That is our unique vocation in this world. And so we've been going through, following the journeys of Paul, uh, and now we come nearly to the end, not quite, next week we'll finish, uh, but this week we're going to be in chapter 27, so if you have a Bible, please turn with me to chapter 27, Acts 27, starting in verse 1. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramidium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go out to his friends to be cared for. And putting out to sea, from there we sailed under the lee of Cyprus, because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra and Lycia. There, there the centurion found a ship of Alexandria going sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Nidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go further, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salomni. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lassia. Since much time had passed, and the voyage was now dangerous, because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid, no, paid more attention to the, plot, the pilot and the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Now, when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon, a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along, running under the lee of a small island called Cauda. We managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting, up, after hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on, Sirtis, on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. And since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, men, you should have listened to me. And not set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet, now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night, there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. 
you must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. When the 14th night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under the pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes in the ship's boat of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food saying, today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair of, is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship, and when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now, when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach and on which they planned to, if possible, run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders, then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion... Wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, in uh, January of 1736, there was a man by the name of John Wesley, an Anglican priest from England, sailing on a ship in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, heading to Georgia, of all places, one of the colonies of England. And he was coming here to become a missionary to the people here, uh, the colonists and to the Indians that still lived here. And if you don't know anything about John Wesley... He was the kind of man that if you were to sit down to a really formal dinner, he would know, he'd be the guy that knows which fork and which knife to use at all of the, the uh, courses. I don't know what that is, but it's not to say that he was rich, it's to say that he was very proper, very methodical. And um, he did everything properly. As a, as a college student, uh, at Oxford, he actually founded a group of very serious Christians who went by the name the Holy Club, <laughs> and at the Holy Club, they met together 
often to hold each other to a standard of righteousness that uh, us mere mortals could not hope to attain to. Um, But they had a list of 22 questions that they asked each other every time they met and then reported back to one another on how it went. And some of these, I'm not going to read them all, but some of these included the following. Am I consciously or unconsciously creating the impression that I am better than I really am? In other words, am I a hypocrite? Okay, no small question. Am I honest in all my acts and words, or do I exaggerate? Did the Bible live in me today? Am I enjoying prayer? Did I pray about the money I spent? Did I disobey God in anything? In anything. Okay, so all this to say, this is a man who cannot be accused of being lazy or lax about his faith. On the contrary, he was dead earnest, serious, grave, sober. So serious, in fact, that he volunteered as a priest, as a newly ordained priest, to travel thousands of miles across the Atlantic Ocean and become a missionary in the colony of Georgia. But one night in January, while he was on that ship headed to the New World, a great storm threatened to overwhelm the ship. And as the waves crashed over the, the bow and flooded the deck, and as the thunder pounded above, Wesley found, to his great surprise, that he was terrified to die. And as he clamored for safety and tried to hold on to whatever he could, through the pounding of the thunder, and the rain, and the waves, and the great tumult, he heard something. He heard voices singing. And they were singing glad songs of salvation. You see, on that ship with him was a group of German Christians, they're called Moravians, and since this particular day was a Sunday, they had gathered on the deck of the ship the the same ship in the same storm for Sunday services. (laughs) And they were singing their psalms under the peace of Christ. Now, listen to John Wesley recount that in his diary from that day. He says, in the midst of the psalm wherewith their service began, the sea broke over split the mainsail in pieces, covered the ship, and poured in between the decks as if the deep had already swallowed us up. A terrible screaming began among the English. (laughs) The Germans calmly sung on. I asked one of them afterwards, were you not afraid? He answered, I thank God, no. I asked, but were not your women and children afraid? He replied mildly, no, our women and children are not afraid to die. From them, I went to their crying, trembling neighbors and pointed out to them the difference in the hour of trial between him that feareth God and him that feareth him not. The Germans sang on. Okay, now, we see from his diary that Wesley was astonished by his own fear of death. He, he didn't know it existed until the, the possibility of death was thrust upon him. And then he was astonished that this was true. 
And I know there are some, um, I know there are some people in this room, well, hold, let's wait for a second. I, we'll get to you in a second. Um, let's finish with Wesley. Um, he was terrified to die, but the Moravians, even the children, were not afraid to die. They had no fear of death. And it was at that very moment that all the vast structures, if you know anything about Wesley's life, all the vast structures of faith and belief and methodism that he had put in place came crumbling down to the ground. Every piece of righteousness that he had worked so hard and painstakingly built brick by brick, it fell to the ground. And he realized that though he was arriving in Georgia with a collar on his neck, he was an unconverted man and knew nothing of the gospel of Christ. Now, if you're anything like me, um, you probably relate (laughs) more to the English in that story than the Moravians. And I'm, which is not to say that I know there are people in here who, um, who do not fear death. And I thank God for you. Um, For you, death is just, in the words of my dear friend Daniel Rickett, death is just getting dressed for God. And I thank God for people like you. We need you for our encouragement. But the rest of us, if we're honest, to some degree are afraid. We fear death. Or if we don't fear death, we're at least, to quote C.S. Lewis, ashamed of death. And if we were on that ship in 1738, we would be among the English screaming in terror, not among the Moravians singing glad songs of salvation as the ship was pounced with waves. And what we see in our text today, it's so interesting, what we see in our text today is that Paul is almost in the exact same situation that Wesley was, or we should probably say it the other way around. Wesley was in the exact same situation as Paul was all those years ago. And we see Paul providing the paradigm for the Moravians in Acts 27. And, uh, and he finds himself being transported to Rome. Let me just summarize the story for you here. He, he finds himself being transported to Rome because he has appealed to Caesar. And so before Caesar, he must stand. Now, Paul has said to the centurion in charge of the ship that he's had a vision and that if they continue sailing during this time, uh, that they will do so uh, and and suffer much damage, much loss. But the centurion, as you heard, does not listen to Paul. He says, "Eh, I'm going to listen to the owner of the ship. And so they go on anyway, and the ship sails right into a tempest. And the waves crash over the deck for days, and the crew begins to throw the ship's supplies overboard to try to lighten it. And this goes on for days and days until Luke gives us this marvelous editorial comment. He says in verse 20, When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Neither sun nor stars appeared for many days. And as you know, if you're in the middle of an ocean, uh, the middle of a sea with no land in sight, two of the primary instruments by which an ancient sailor could navigate was the sun and the stars. And so it was that the ship's crew abandoned the hope of being saved. But then, then, right at that moment, a voice tore through the fear. 
Paul stands up and says, you should have listened to me and not sailed from our previous harbor. And now we're in grave danger because of that. But take heart. The Lord has appeared to me and said that I must stand trial before Caesar in Rome and his unfathomable kindness has been extended to you so that he has granted to me every one of your lives if you only stay with the ship. You see, Paul does not fear to die. Do you remember last week we read it? I didn't really preach on it, but last week we read the part where Paul's friends, he says he's going to Jerusalem, and Paul's friend says, no, don't go to Jerusalem. If you go to Jerusalem, they're going to put you on trial, and they're going to kill you. And Paul says, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? Don't you know that I am not afraid to suffer and die for the sake of Christ? And here, right here in this moment, in this storm, we can see that Paul means what he says. The peace of Christ rests upon him, and he is not afraid to die. So 14 days pass in that condition. The storm doesn't let up for 14 days. I mean, can you imagine? Upon this ship, like lost at sea, there isn't a moment's rest from the storm for two weeks. Day and night, the clouds cover the sky. Every moment, the ship lurches and sways, and, and everybody is wet to the bone. Always, you never get dry. Every hour is filled with anxiety and every plan that you've tried to save yourselves has been tossed out into the sea. And in this state, the ship's crew hasn't even stopped to eat for any of those 14 days. And then the most amazing thing happens. Listen, in verses 33 through 36, as day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food saying, Today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength. For not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he said these things, he took bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. So the apostle, who has been through all 14 days of this storm with them, watching them abandoning all hope of survival, stands in their midst and says, you must eat. <laughs> you must. And then what he does, and then, then he does what his Lord, Jesus, would have done. He took bread, he blessed it, he broke it, and then he gave it to them. If you were here last year, I preached on this. Um, th this is something that Jesus, it was di a distinctive of Jesus. These four words belong to him. When Jesus was resurrected, uh, his, his own disciples didn't actually recognize him in his physical body. When they, rec they recognized him when he sat down, took bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were open, they recognized him. That is a distinctive um, character trait of Jesus Christ. He takes bread, he blesses it, he breaks it, and he gives it to them. And so Paul, in the midst of this, um, in the midst of their fear of death, 
Paul, who did not fear death, put them at ease by, by behaving in the image of Christ. Now, notice that it says, after that, after Paul broke the bread for them, it says, they were all encouraged. Now, I think the point of the story comes down to that moment right there. Someone who is unafraid of death is a great encouragement to those who are. Someone who is unafraid of death is a great encouragement to those who are. And as the church of Jesus Christ, whose sole vocation it is to proclaim the death-defeating resurrection of Jesus, of which we are all partakers, it falls to us to encourage in the image of Jesus our neighbors who fear death. You see, our our whole world is lurching and pitching and rolling and the waves are breaking over the deck and everyone is terrified of what is going to happen and they need us to stand fearless in the midst of it and say, take heart. Now, is that a little dramatic? I don't know. Is everybody really that afraid of death? Uh, is the waves really, you know, you're going to go to Chipotle after this and everybody's going to look really happy eating the burritos, as they should. Um, and then you're going to drive home and then you're going to wave to your neighbor and they're going to have a smile on their face as they're mowing their lawn. And it's like, is everybody really afraid of death? <laughs> Come on. Um, seems a little out of touch to say that everyone is so fearful of death. And I, that's true. It's a fine objection. But... I return to Blaise Pascal to help us understand this condition. He says, being unable to cure death, being unable to cure death, that, I think we're all with that, being unable to cure death, wretchedness, and ignorance, men have decided in order to be happy not to think about such things. Or, if you want it from a more modern source, listen to um, Ernest Becker, who won the Pulitzer Prize for his book, Denial of Death, in 1977. He says, much of people's daily behavior consists of attempts to deny death and thereby keep their basic anxiety under control. People would have a difficult time controlling their anxiety, though, if alarming realities continued to intrude and they were exposed to brutal reminders of their vulnerability. This is where society plays its role. No function of society is more crucial than its strengthening of individual defenses against death anxiety. Many of our society's beliefs and practices are in the service of death denial. That is, reducing the experience of anxiety. Funeral homes with their flowers and homilies and the medical system with its evasions are only among the more obvious societal elements to join with individuals to maintain the fiction that there is nothing to fear. So, our fear of death churns our guts so powerfully that we do all in our power to avoid thinking about it. It's inevitable, we all know this, but we do our best to push it out of our mind and not deal with it. And I suspect that's how those sailors lived their lives too that were on that boat with Paul. But when they sailed through that storm, the real possibility of death was thrust upon them. And they came face to face with the reality that they had no answer for that question. 
But when the question came and they melted before its heat, Paul was there and stood up in the middle of them and said, fear not. You see, even though people are happily eating the burritos and smiling as they mow their grass, one day, and only God knows which day, the real possibility of death will be thrust upon them. Um, last night, I, I watched the first Star Wars with my children, and um, the, uh, my daughter's first question before we started watching was, is it scary? And I said, no. Um, and uh, it was only like 20 minutes into it when the sand people come and knock Luke unconscious, and the, you know, um, and, uh, and she was freaked out, terrified. I mean, it, I didn't think that was scary, but apparently it is. And so she was scared, and so my job was to say, listen, baby, <laughs> um, it's just a guy. He's wearing a not very convincing costume. He's got like canvas on his face. It's just a guy under there. It's not a real sand person. He's not made out of sand. And she said, oh, so it's just movie magic. And I said, yes, it's just movie magic. She says, okay, it's not that scary. And I said, that's right, it's right. And then we continued to watch it. And when our neighbors and our friends and our family have death thrust upon them and they melt before it, they need a believer in the resurrection to step into that moment and say, wait, look, there's nothing to fear. There's nothing to fear. They need the encouragement of one who is unafraid to die. Now, uh, how do you get that? <laughs> because that's the key question. How do you get that? If I asked everyone who had no fear of death, honestly, no fear of death to sit on this side of the room and everyone who is from a little afraid to a lot afraid to sit over here, I have a feeling our room would be a little lopsided. And I would sit with you people, just so you know. Um, but if the part and parcel of our vocation here in this world is to be the kinds of people who are unafraid of death and encourage those that are, then how do we get there if we're also afraid of death? Well, how did Paul do it? He would not have been able to encourage those sailors if he himself hadn't been encouraged first. Paul was only giving them what he had already received for himself. Do you remember twice in this story, the Lord speaks directly to Paul. He says, you must testify before Caesar in Rome. And the Lord encouraged Paul, and Paul took the substance of that encouragement and broke it and gave it to the people on that ship. In fact, we know that Paul was so profoundly encouraged by Christ that he could write the following to the Philippians. For me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. He's not lying. He's not doing what I would be tempted to do that, and if death was facing me, say, I'm just praising the Lord, man. You know, this is good. No. To, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. I would rather depart and be with Christ, for that is far better, but it is better for you that I remain in the flesh. And so here I will continue my work. So it's not that Paul was just unafraid of death, he welcomed it. He yearned for it. He longed to depart and be with Christ. 
And you might say, well, okay, um, I might also be unafraid to die if Christ spoke directly to me like that. Like, like did you ever see that movie Big Fish? Uh, back in the 90s, all of them, my favorite movies, uh, the kid looks in the eye of the witch and sees how he's going to die. And so knowing how he's going to die means that he can face any situation, no matter how dangerous in the world, knowing, oh, I'm going to survive this. This is not how I go. If, if you could see in the eye, yeah, no problem. I, I wouldn't fear anything. If Christ spoke directly to me too, but he hasn't. But he has, hasn't he? Like in in the gospel of John chapter eight, Jesus says to his followers, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Now, how can that be? Everyone dies, Jesus knows this. Um, He knew that he himself would die, but there is another kind of death in scripture. It's what, It's what the scriptures call the second death. It's the death, it's not the physical death. Everybody endures that. Everybody must pass through the river on the way to the celestial city. But the second death is the death of condemnation. It's the death that occurs on the other side of the judgment day. We all physically die. We are all physically resurrected. And then we stand before the judgment seat of Christ and he proclaims a verdict over us. Guilty or not guilty? And the second death comes for those who are pronounced guilty. That's the death he is talking about. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. But it is precisely our belief in the death and resurrection of Jesus that reverses that sentence. The writer of Hebrews tells us that Christ tasted death for us all. Now again, he can't, he can't mean that Jesus died a physical death for us all because we all still die the physical death. He must mean that Christ died the second death for us all, the death of condemnation. And, as, and it is condemnation which is the, the sting, the pain, the fear of death. Paul, if you'll remember, in 1 Corinthians, as he's reflecting on the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15, he says, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? If it be true that Christ died the second death of condemnation for all of us, then the sting, the pain, the fear has been removed from the act of death, from the event of death. Christ has tasted death for all who believe in him so that we might never taste the death of condemnation. We have nothing to fear about death because we shall not be condemned on the other side of it. And we have that on the authority of the words of Christ himself. But someone might say, my fear of death has more to do with everything I will leave behind the, the people I love, the children, the friends, the work that I will leave undone. And that, just so you know, that is good and proper. That, to, to feel the sorrow of such things is good and proper. From the beginning, we were not meant to die. 
And so when we do, it necessarily creates a, a tear in the fabric of things that cannot be mended until the resurrection, and that is a case for sorrow. It is true. But in that case, I impress upon you the goodness of our Father in heaven. He does nothing except for our good, and he proved that by suffering in the person of his son on the cross in our place so that we would not have to suffer that condemnation. And so if you fear death because of the sorrow that it will cause, then take heart. Your father who cares for all of your life, your family, your work, your friends more than you do, will see to it that those things are cared for. We believe that one day the torn fabric will be mended. One day we shall open resurrected eyes and breathe into resurrected lungs and we shall see how the Lord has made all things new and we will rejoice lifting our voices in songs of praise and in that day we will know that to die was not a fearful thing. Death was but getting dressed for God. But until that day, we remain here. And the waves crash over the bow. The wind breaks up the mast. But, brothers and sisters, fear not. Our Lord sleeps in the stern on a cushion and is unmoved by these things. And when we wake him up yelling, don't you care if I die? Then he will say to us the very same things he said to his disciples all those years ago on the Sea of Galilee. Be not afraid. Because he is the only person who has been through that thing we fear so much and can tell us on the other side all shall be well. All shall be well. Now we come to the table this morning as we do each and every week. And it could be that you come to the table happy. And the fear of death hasn't touched you. But it could be that you come to the table this morning and all the stars and the sun have disappeared. And all hope of being saved is abandoned. Well, Christ comes to us in this meal. He has taken it. He has blessed it. He has broken it. And he now gives it to us in the midst of a storm so that we might be encouraged. So we might not be afraid. This table, attending it, it, this is to remind us that if you belong to Jesus, no matter how your heart condemns you, the Lord is greater than your heart. And to partake of this meal is to be reminded that Jesus tasted death for you, and that means you will never taste the death of condemnation. And so come, come to this table and be encouraged so that we may bring that encouragement to a world in desperate need of it. Let's pray. Father, you know what to do with your people. I've brought some meager loaves to them.
And what I ask is that as your son did so many years ago, he would take these words, bless them, break them, and give them to us. Multiply them so that we may all be fed, so that we may all take courage. Father, if we are going to be the kinds of people who say that to live is Christ and to die is gain, then you must do that work in us. We can't fake it. It doesn't work. So you must give us this gift if we are to fulfill our vocation. So we pray earnestly that you would meet us in this meal and strengthen our hearts. Pray this in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. Everyone who believes in the resurrection of Christ, who believes in the saving death of Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, this is your meal. You, you may come, you may be encouraged at this table. If you're not a believer in the saving death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, first of all, the, I implore you to believe. Come join us at this table. This table is for you too. And he brought you here today so that you may join us and come into the family of God. But, but as you all come, know that this table is set here for your courage in this world. So come and partake of the meal that Christ has provided for you.